Uh, our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon, and we love them very much. We are one church with them. Let's bless them with this. Hey, guys, love you. And let's continue in our study of the book of Matthew. We are now in Matthew chapter 5. So if you'd like to open up in your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be starting the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We will be in it for a few weeks, a rather famous passage from the New Testament, about which much has been said. And we'll try to say a few things and be faithful to God's Word. The title of this sermon is God's Good News for the Unexpected and Undeserving. God's Good News for the Unexpected and Undeserving. We're going to be looking at the Beatitudes this morning, which you no doubt, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, have heard much about. Um, Verses 1 through 12 is what we'll be reading in Matthew chapter 5. I'm reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, And when Jesus saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, For they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's wonderful word. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the holiness of your word. We are thankful for the pure, unadulterated, glorious truth of your word. And we accept it as such, the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, perfect, wonderful, life-giving Word of God. And we ask that today we would hear it as such and receive it as such. We pray together that you would please anoint me to communicate it faithfully and in a way that's helpful and brings glory to you and a blessing to our lives. Give us ears to hear it. We ask that Jesus would be made preeminent in our hearts and our minds, in our preaching, in our listening, and then in our going today to live life on mission in the midst of your blessing and your kingdom that has come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you guys a question. 
It's not a trick question, so don't be nervous. What is one of our culture's favorite sayings about God? Anybody? No, no. Okay, by culture, I don't mean church culture. I mean like American culture, like God bless America, like in our money and God we trust. What's another one? Your grandma probably said it. Okay, obviously it's not that popular. So this is an exercise and a great introduction to a sermon. Not. Let me tell you what you should have said. Here's what your grandma said. God helps those. Okay, you just, you just had a little, you were just stuck there. You knew it. God helps those who help themselves. Nothing has ever been less true, according to the Bible. Your grandma was a heretic. Now, again, this is a great intro to a sermon. This is, young preachers, take note. This is how you do it. Look for something people don't know and then insult their grandmother. Hashtag killing it. But it has everything to do with what God is wanting to do and communicate in this passage. It's difficult, honestly, for us now in our culture, that same broad sort of American, Western, radical individualist culture, it's difficult for us to understand this text, what's often known as the Beatitudes from the Latin word for blessing. It's difficult for us to understand this because we, as a, as a broad American culture, Western culture, are radically oriented towards self-sufficiency. We are radically ori- oriented toward strength as being the value, toward victory, toward privilege, toward power, right? We're so oriented that way that we make up lies about God that are in tune with that. God helps those who help themselves, so who are self-sufficient and strong and victorious and able. We make up lies about God to fit our culture, cultural, excuse me, presumptions. And because of our cultural presumptions, this passage is really hard for us to understand. It actually really doesn't make sense to our cultural milieu, or however you say that. French word, who knows? So, what we have generally done with the Beatitudes, this list here, is try to make them a to-do list. That's the way that we read them, as a to-do list and a way that we might earn a blessing from God is how we start to think from. Oh, well, if I make myself poor in spirit, well, if I hunger enough, well, if I become meek, Well, if I make myself mourn, if I make myself become persecuted, it doesn't even work logically as a to-do list. It was never meant to be a to-do list. We want it to be a to-do list because that's the form of our culture. We want to do something in order to earn this blessing. And because it doesn't make sense to us in the way that it's meant to, we try to do something about it. Let me explain. 
Think about what's happening in Matthew. What is Matthew doing? Matthew is presenting to us Jesus as the long-expected Messiah, King, and Savior of the world. But what Matthew's been telling us since chapter 1, the first few verses, is that this Savior, this King, this Messiah, didn't come in an expected way. He didn't come in the form of money and power and pedigree. Matthew told us that Jesus came from a broken and sordid family tree. That he was born in a small town in an animal stable and laid in a manger. But at a young age, he became a refugee fleeing from corrupt political power. That he was raised in an off-the-map, little out-of-the-way town doing manual labor. And he was announced gloriously, supposedly, by a bug-eating, camel-fur-wearing sort of weirdo out in the wilderness away from the centers of power and religion. So everything about the way that this king came was unexpected. But then the baptism of Jesus took place. And when he was baptized, which was also unexpected, the heavens were opened. And you'll remember that the father spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and that the spirit descended upon him. Also unexpected, but glorious. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness and the power of the Holy Spirit and has this face-to-face confrontation with Satan and evil and he wins. He succeeds to do what humanity wasn't able to do, what Israel couldn't do, what we so often fail to do. He was victorious over the enemy. And what we begin to learn from that is even though it came in an unexpected sort of way, God's gracious blessing and righteous rule are coming into the world with the person of Jesus. This is my beloved son, the long expected Messiah King, full of the power of the Holy Spirit, victorious over the power and the schemes of the enemy. The kingdom, unexpectedly, has come with Jesus. And what Jesus is doing now at the close of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is announcing and demonstrating and explaining the good news about this kingdom. Good news. We translate it gospel. It's the good news. Look up in chapter 4 and verse 23. It says... And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel, good news, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount here, he has been busy announcing, demonstrating, and explaining the good news of this unexpected kingdom. 
And he demonstrated this kingdom in the healings that we just read about. That was part of the demonstration of the fact that God's gracious blessing and righteous rule have come into the world and they're beginning to undo what has gone wrong. Jesus is demonstrating that in those healings. Now, what, what, what exactly do they demonstrate? Well, they demonstrate a whole lot of things that we'll talk about in several times during the book of Matthew. But amongst them is this idea. Jesus' healings of those people, his demonstration of the kingdom by healing them, demonstrates that God actually helps those who cannot help themselves. That is the truth. God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's what Jesus is endeavoring to demonstrate through those healings. Those who were in pure need could not help themselves, nor could they necessarily be helped by anyone else. Jesus comes to those people and helps them. It is the sick that need a physician, he would later say. He has come to seek and to save the lost, he would later say. He is the friend of the broken, the outcast, and the sinners, we would be told. God's restorative and redeeming blessing has been brought to those who had no other hope. God in Christ helps those who cannot help themselves. He demonstrated that. Now, when you get to the Beatitudes, he is explaining that. He's putting some grammar to what he has been demonstrating. He's telling us who is blessed and to whom does the kingdom belong. And all of those descriptions in in those several verses, they're all having to do with the kingdom. The first blessing started in in verse 3 and ended with the phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one in 10, verse 10, ends with the phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything in between has to do with this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And all those blessings and all those promises are qualities or components of the kingdom of heaven. He's explaining to us who is blessed and to whom does the kingdom belong. And again, it is, like everything else we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Matthew, unexpected. It is not the ones that he pronounces to be blessed. They are not the ones who who would normally be seen as in, in. And there was very much in that culture in first century Israel an in-group. They were the religious elite. And all of the rest of Israel would have seen them as the in-group and they saw themselves as the in-group and we continually see Jesus sort of pitted against them in the way that they understand the law and the scripture and the grace of God and Israel's access to God and God's interaction with Israel. They would have been the end of the day. And if the kingdom was coming with money and power and might, it would have gone to them but it's an unexpected way that the kingdom comes. They were the ones whom all of the normal people would expect the blessing of God to be upon. They were the ones. 
the religious elite, the elite, excuse me, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes that we'll see much about later on. They were the ones who within the system had successfully helped themselves. And so according to the logic of our day and our culture, and it was the same logic of their day and their culture, because they had successfully helped themselves, they had seemingly impressed God, and certainly they were the ones who deserved the blessing of God. But what Jesus tells us in the Beatitude is that God is not impressed by those who have helped themselves. He's not looking for the good performer He's not looking for the strong. He's not looking for the self-sufficient. He has come to save the unexpected and the undeserving. That's what's being told to us in the Beatitudes. The blessing of God comes to the unexpected and the undeserving. Remember that Jesus is the fulfillment, the ultimate expression of the whole story of God and Israel, which started with the whole story of God and humanity. Loving creation. God spoke all things into existence because of love, act of God. Sinful rebellion. Humanity rebelled against God. Gracious redemption. God designates for himself a people after his own name, Israel. And he delivers them from slavery. The beginning of God's work of gracious redemption. And then he gives them the loving law. He gives them the law that they might do well and succeed and prosper and be okay and flourish. That's the story of God and humanity and God and Israel. And the gracious redemption part, that work of God redeeming Israel and ultimately redeeming humanity, we must understand God choosing Israel as a demonstration of the way God's salvation would come into the world was purely according to grace, not anything that Israel deserved. We've got to get that to get the story and what Jesus is saying here. God chose Israel as a vehicle for his salvation strictly according to grace and not any sort of merit. This is a big deal. They did not deserve, and according to sort of common logic, they, 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 they were unexpected. It wasn't because God's choosing of Israel and his gracious redemption of them. It wasn't because they were big and strong. In fact, God told them, look, you're not. Look what he said in Deuteronomy. Moses said about God, choosing Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, you see how it's unexpected? I mean, let's be honest. It's hard for us because we have a lot of Christian thinking going on, and that's okay. But think about generally in humanity, it's unexpected. If we have an opportunity to choose, we're going to choose the biggest and the most. Right? Bless you. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other peoples. We see God working according to a different 
value here. He didn't choose Israel because they were big and strong. He also did not choose Israel because they were rich and powerful. Look again what Moses said. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. It's in the same context there. God wasn't looking for the rich and the wealthy. All things come from him. So when God chooses, he does so according to a different convention. It wasn't the big and strong. It wasn't the rich and powerful. It wasn't even his choosing of Israel because they were right and righteous or good and obedient. I mean, that's got to be the way it works, right? I'm good and so God blesses me. This is something different. This is unexpected. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, talking about the people who would be in the promised land, do not say to yourself, okay, after God brings them into the place of redemption, into the promise, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. You see, that's the way we all think. I'm right, I'm good, I've obeyed, therefore God will do good for me. Something different happening. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land. Understand then, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. God has made it abundantly clear in Scripture that this storyline, loving creation, sinful rebellion, gracious redemption, Is something that God is doing because of grace and a whole different logic of love than the way that we think and function. Demonstrated clearly in his choosing of Israel. You guys aren't righteous. You're stiff-necked people. You're just the opposite. And yet he chose them in love nonetheless. I wasn't looking for your wealth and your influence, anything that you have has come from me. It wasn't because you were numerous. You were actually the least. God saved and delivered Israel in spite of their liabilities and in the face of their lack of merit. And this is what God is doing with humanity through Jesus. And this is what Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes. Remember the context of it was set in chapter 4, verse 23. We're told Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That's the good news. That God in Christ was bringing deliverance, forgiveness, and his blessing and his rule to the world. And that it was being offered, as it always has been, to the unexpected and the undeserving. The unexpected and the undeserving. This is the key to understanding the Beatitudes. You may have heard it before, that these Beatitudes can be thought of as be-attitudes. Attitudes you ought to have or ways you ought to be. That's wrong. 
That's what we do because we secretly believe God helps those who help himself. So we don't even understand this list that is telling us we're undeserving and God's blessing is unexpected. We don't even think in those terms because we're Americans. We don't even have a paradigm. So we see that and we say, here's the way I'll think about it. I'll make it something I can do to earn a blessing from God. The B attitudes, wrong. Jesus here is not telling us how to be blessed. He is not giving us good advice on how to be blessed. He is giving us good news that God's blessing comes to the unexpected and undeserving. This is demonstrated, pictured really well in something Jesus spoke about in Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Anybody want to raise their hand and say, that's me? No, nobody. Okay. (laughs) Don't do that. You don't need to do that. Jesus told this parable. Okay. It's for all of us. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. There's a religious elite that we've been talking about. And the other, a tax collector. There's the unexpected and undeserving. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Stop right there. Red flag. (laughs) Flag on the play. Warning sign. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Other people are robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even this tax collector. But me? I'm good. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, Jesus continues, stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus' commentary is this. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. That is the unexpected working of God to bring his blessing to the undeserving rebels within humanity. And that is the very thing that Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Again, it's not a to-do list. It's not good advice. It isn't saying to you, now make yourself poor in spirit. It's saying that God's blessing in Christ comes to those who are poor in spirit. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? The idea there of poor is like a beggar, destitute, has nothing. Spirit meaning anything that we might have before God. 
It's the idea of this tax collector who wouldn't even look up toward heaven, was beating his breast with the realization of his own sin. And all he could say is, God, have mercy on me. It is the opposite of the Pharisee who stood and said, I'm so glad I'm not like other people. I actually am spiritually rich. I actually have some merit here. I actually have some quality that earns me something before God. That's not the way it works. And what would have been unexpected for the religious elite, what is unexpected in our culture and all of humanity is that Jesus came to seek and save the spiritually impoverished. It's the picture of a beggar with hand extended, won't even look up and is dependent upon the kindness of someone else. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me and where is the place that I may rest? And I'll stop right there for a minute. There's a revealing of that human idea of I will do something for God or something to earn something from God. And God looks at our efforts, the house that we would build him and says, really? Verse two, from my hand made all these things. What are you going to do to impress me? Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is brought to them in Christ. The concept of surprise continues in the next verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now there the to-do list begins to fall apart because what are you going to do? Are you going to make yourself miserable? You're going to look for reasons to mourn? You're going to go out and make bad things happen to yourself so you can be sad? That's clearly not what Jesus is saying. This isn't good advice. This is good news. But what we assume in our culture and the hidden value is the blessed one is the one who's always celebrating. Right? That's, that's really what we think. I mean, that's what we think when we look at Instagram, we scroll through and, oh, she's blessed. She's at a party. Oh, he's blessed. He's on vacation. Oh, he's blessed. That just happened to him. Oh, he just got the promotion. Oh, he's got that car. We assume that the blessed one is the one that's always celebrating. This is a different logic. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not saying that there's any merit in mourning. This is not a merit thing. This is God helping those who cannot help themselves. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is a fulfillment of Isaiah 63. 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus read this in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. We're further surprised in the next verse, verse 5. 
Blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. There's a big question. Who inherits the earth? Who wins in the end, so to speak, eschatologically? Who, who wins in the end? Well, we know in our culture who wins in the end. It's survival of the fittest and the strongest. And he who, ends and wi- he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> Whatever, however that goes. We have built everything on survival of the fittest and the strongest. Right? That is not the way it works. God promises to provide a place for the meek and humble. So fulfillment of the things God was speaking to Israel in Psalm 37. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Right? Good things happening to bad people. It's very much our world. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. God's going to deal with injustice and evil. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. This is what Jesus is quoting. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now we could certainly say, okay, okay, now this is a to-do, right? I know that's a to-do, right? I got to make myself meek. I got to make myself humble. Well, sure, that's a good thing. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We see that in scripture continually. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yeah, we should seek humility, but again, You want to turn it into a to-do list. It's not a to-do list. There are those who are truly meek, who would have no hope in the system of this world of winning in the end. And Jesus says, my kingdom has come. It is not survival of the fittest or the strongest. The meek in me shall inherit the earth. Everything has been turned unexpectedly upside down by the undeserved grace of God. We're brought good news again in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Very similar in quality to what's being spoken of in Psalm 37 in the previous verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now again, we could sort of use this as a principle. We ought to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Certainly. What does that mean? The idea can mean righteousness, like right things happening, or the idea can also mean a synonym for that, justice. Some Bibles translate it that way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Why are you ever hungering and thirsting for anything? Because you've had to go without. Got that? When you don't have food, you're... When you don't have anything to drink, you're... And so when you see no righteousness, when there is no justice, you hunger and thirst for those things. Why? Because maybe you've been the victim of injustice. Maybe you truly mourn at the unrighteousness that we see in the world. 
And who are you to be able to affect it? What what are you able to do about it? Maybe it's without. Maybe you've suffered injustice. Maybe you've seen injustice. But maybe the unrighteousness that you're mourning is actually also within. Unable to affect change in ourselves. To make ourselves any better in and of ourselves. We find ourselves hungering and thirsting for that which is right and righteous and just before God. And left to ourselves, there's no hope for transformation. And the world left to itself, well, then evil would carry the day. But the kingdom has come. And so you're blessed if you see injustice and you're wanting something more. If you see unrighteousness without or within and you're wanting something more. For the kingdom promises, hold on, you will be satisfied. The ultimate fulfillment of which we can see in Revelation chapter 7. This is specifically about those who have been martyred during this period. It says, For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Now, pause right there. It's not talking about food. It's not talking about water. These were those who lost their heads for their faith in Jesus. These were those who had suffered under an unjust, unrighteous world system. Who hadn't seen it, so they were longing for it. And here is the picture of satisfaction in the presence of Christ. They will hunger no longer, nor will they thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, no more exposure or any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne, Jesus, will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The promise of satisfaction for the righteously unsatisfied. We see the same sort of idea when we skip to the part on persecution, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. Again, it doesn't work as a to-do list. For the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is announcing good news to those who appear to be losing. That's what's happening in the Beatitudes. And certainly, in some sense, the multitudes that he was speaking to who were coming to him, the sick and the lame and the broken, and bringing their sick and lame and broken friends. Those were those who very much felt like they were losing in that culture. After all, Israel was occupied by Rome. And Rome was a culture of death and power. And the religious elite wasn't pictured in the multitudes. They were down there in Jerusalem doing their religious stuff. And they were the privileged, and they were the ones who deserved the blessing of God. These were those who appeared to be losing in that culture. And Jesus said, I've come to you to rescue you. And according to the world's standards, you feel like you're losing. It's left you hungry, persecuted, suffering. But in me and in my kingdom, you will be satisfied. And your reward in heaven will be great. 
This is good news. Verses 7 through 9, same idea. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Just a reversal of the way that our world functions. Our world doesn't function according to mercy. It functions according to power and ruthlessness. Our world is not concerned with purity. Our world is always the ends justifies the means. And so we function according to deceitfulness, whether it's on our taxes or with our spouse and our community before God. And our world is not about peace. Our world is about war. But Jesus here brings good news to the merciful and the pure and the peacemakers. It would seem in a world like that, in a world like ours, they would be the ones that were losing. But the kingdom has come and everything is different. It's unexpected. It's undeserved. Again, this is not a call to work. It's a pronouncement of grace. So what do we do with it? Well, here's what you're already doing with it. You're already using it like a checklist. You've gone through and you've checked off the parts where you feel like you fall into this blessing. Well, persecuted. I'm certainly not persecuted. I live in America. I can't really count that one. So that's not going to be any good. Uh, Pure in heart. Jeez, I know where I've been and what I've done. I'm not going to get that one. Merciful? I think I'm pretty merciful. I was pretty nice to that guy the other day. That one lady cut me off and I was pretty cool to her. Peacemaker for sure. Like, can't we just all get along? Like, mourn. I don't want to do that one. Uh, Meek. I'm not You're doing exactly what we're not supposed to do with this. It's not a list of the way that we ought to be. It is a summation of all the different, unexpected, undeserving walks of life that God has sent his only begotten son to so that we might have forgiveness and deliverance and a new way to live in the kingdom. It is the good news that the prevailing powers and dominant forces in this world don't carry the day. Jesus is the king. Came from a broken family tree who was laying in a manger in a little town, grew up doing manual labor in a faraway place. His forerunner was a bug-eating, fur-wearing freak out in the wilderness. But he was the promised king the Messiah, in whom we have been brought the grace of God. So what do we do with this? Well, we do exactly what I just told you not to do. We actually do want to see ourselves in these things. We must find ourselves somewhere in there. And certainly for all of us, Jesus started with, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the one that lays the rest of them all before us. Blessed are are the poor in spirit. The main disconnect is that we generally don't think, or we generally think, excuse me, that we have some sort of merit before God. And we have none. Isaiah the prophet also said, even our righteous deeds before God are as filthy rags. 
So it's an invitation to see ourselves before God as, as, very un-American now, as the unexpected, the undeserving, the powerless before God. That is to whom the kingdom comes. That we have no merit in and of ourselves. God's grace has been brought to us. And so we see ourselves there and we then rejoice. That's what we do with the Beatitudes. We rejoice that somewhere in there we know that God's grace has been brought to us so we have reason to celebrate. Listen, those broken multitudes that Jesus was speaking to, as they heard this, their jaws would have slowly sagged down to the grass and the rocks. They thought forever they were on the outside of the blessing of God. Jesus just brought them all inside and they knew they didn't deserve it. You think there was a party that day? There was a party that day. Because grace had been brought to them. Jesus is going to tell us in the next couple sermons exactly what to do in response to grace. And it won't be quite as flowery. Just warning you. But we rest there for today. Grace has been brought to us. So if we are the recipients of grace, we must see ourselves in these words. We must rejoice and we can hope in these promises that in the end, Jesus wins. And in the end, the center will be Christ on the throne and we with him. And all of our needs and hopes and dreams and fears and all that has ever gone wrong in the world will be brought into the love and the sovereignty of Christ. And that helps us get through today. And so we give thanks and we praise and we worship him. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the good news brought to us in your word. Thank you that you sent your only son because you loved us so much. Help us, Lord, to just receive this grace. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Help us to shed that sense where we feel that we deserve or we've earned or, gosh, Lord, I, I see myself so often in that Pharisee from Luke who said, I thank you that I'm not like other people. It's not to whom the kingdom blessing comes, Lord, forgive me. Show me, show us the places where we need to repent. Where we've been thinking wrongly about ourselves and the way that your kingdom works. Teach us to rejoice in this great and glorious gospel, this good news, this grace. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.